What we are seeing right now in the crypto world and in the meme stock world is absolutely the textbook definition of speculative, mm -hmm. um, which has a bad name. Thanks again for tuning in to The Empire's New Clothes. I'm your host, Bradford MacArthur. In a moment, we're speaking with Felix Salmon. He's the chief financial correspondent at Axios, and he's also the host of Slate Money Podcast. And today, he's talking to us about crypto. Felix, I would characterize as hyper-pragmatic, so whether you're for or against, I think everyone's going to get something out of this conversation. I hope you enjoy. Felix, thanks so much for coming on today. A pleasure. Yeah, looking forward to it. So where, uh, where in the world are you calling in from today? Where am I virtually visiting? I am in Chinatown in New York. Okay, awesome. Uh, we were just hanging out in Chinatown over here in Vancouver recently. Took uh, when it got some hot pot. I, I love I love Vancouver's Chinatown. I love all food in Vancouver. It's a great food town. <laughs> Same for New York when I go visit. It's one of my favorites. So you've um, you've got a pretty varied career in finance and journalism. How did just journalism really? I've never worked in finance. <laughs> Okay, well, so how did you initially get interested in writing about um, economics and finance through your lens of journalism? Um, just because that was Euro Money Magazine offered me a job out of um, <laughs> university as a as a graduate like, trainee, and I was I was in like there was a, a mini recession in the UK. There weren't a lot of job offers. I was like, okay. And then they threw me in at the deep end and I was interviewing bank CEOs and learning what euro bonds were and understanding like, you know, spreads over LIBOR. And I was like, okay, this is stuff I can understand. Um, I'm numerate, which it turns out is relatively rare in the journalistic profession. So I kind of cast awesome. out a, a niche for myself as one of the few journalists who understands numbers. Awesome. And when was this? Oh, this was back in the mid nineties. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And so then from there you just carried on and now you uh the host of Slate Money, you've got a bunch of writings you pump out every week. Um I've read a lot of those recently, really cool stuff. And so, you know, I I run this over here and I know my views have changed. They are often kind of evolving and, and moving around. But you've been doing this for a long time, so I I would really love to learn how have you You're calling me changed. Old. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, I mean, I would. So I I had a whole panel about this once. Um, okay. Which was super interesting with like Jim Stewart, Jesse Eisinger, Rana Faruha, all these like legendary financial journalists, and for some reason me. Um, and and the idea was, and the question that Jesse put to us was. Mm. Um, were you radicalized by the financial crisis? Mm, and I think all of us were to some degree. Um, I would say that prior to 2008, um, I had a good relationship with all of the investment banks. I would go in, I would meet the bankers, I would talk to them, they would tell me things, I would believe them, I would write them up. Um, after the financial crisis, I think, that was broken or that was broken during the financial crisis. The, like your like, trust or just it, the two-way relationship? Yeah, exactly. The, the, we realized, the financial press realized that we, we had become stenographers for the banks, that we had missed mm. a lot of the big stories. We had not necessarily understood a lot of the big stories. We had trusted the bankers to know what they were talking about and to be not doing evil things. And then, you know, very importantly, we had trusted the communications professionals at the bank not to lie to us. And then all of that got broken during the financial crisis. You know, they lied to us. It turned out they had been doing terrible things. Um, it turned out that finance was much more systemically important. It was not only systemically important, which we knew, but it was broken and there were real bad actors in it. And um, the idea before 2008, 2008, I think, was that people got very excited about financial innovation and, you know, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. And then after 2008, everyone was like, no, that's a terrible idea. The only good financial innovation <laughs> is the ATM machine and possibly the index fund. And all of the rest of it is just regulatory arbitrage and trying to, like, hide risk 
in products that people don't realize that the risk is hidden in. And, you know, the big takeaway from the financial crisis was you had, was you had these financial products which were supposed to be super safe and they turned out to be super risky. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I think, yeah, that broke a lot of trust with Wall Street and I don't think that trust has ever returned. Yeah, it's quite interesting. How do you think that's uh, impacted the younger generations who were very lucid, very aware, not necessarily financialized. I'm, I'm speaking of millennials specifically, but Snake anyone. people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so how do you think that might have affected people as they move through different phases of life and now are in their earning years and becoming financialized? And, you know, what would be the impact and in what way? So there was definitely, obviously, a major recession in 2008, mm -hmm. 2009. It took a long time to come out of it. People entering the workforce that during those years had a very tough time. It was difficult to get good jobs. It was difficult to get raises. Um, also, you know, I am... I have the advantage being Gen X of being part of a pretty small cohort, right? Gen X is small. Yeah. We, there are very few of us born each year. So there's more or less enough jobs to go around. And with the millennials, there's this much more of a sort of latter day baby boom, more people chasing fewer jobs, less good jobs. Um, so yeah, it was hard for them to save money. Plus they had lived through the financial crisis which destroyed a huge amount of wealth. They um, had lived through a financial crisis, which had, taught them to mistrust Wall Street. So a lot of them, even if they did have money, didn't um, invest it. And that created a whole generation, basically, of um, individuals who have much less wealth than prior generations at that age. Um, we have this incredibly top-heavy wealth distribution right now, where the boomers have like all of the money and the millennials have, but almost none of it. Um, and now I think, you know, this is changing again over the past couple of years, and especially since, call it, the summer of 2020. We've mm -hmm. had this white-hot stock market where everything has gone up. Stocks only go up. Um, crypto only goes up. NFTs only go up. Meme stocks only go up. And, you know, there's a lot of Zoomers and, you know, the generation after the millennials who are <laughs> jumping in with both feet, making loads of money, YOLO, FOMO, and um, having a lot of fun and, and on the discords and the Reddit boards and whatnot. And and it's very exuberant. And there's there's lots of irony and there's lots of community. And it does seem like there's a real, yet another major generational shift happening. Mm-hmm. It's quite interesting when you zoom out the perspective you're taking here of a generation was raised with these recessions and politicians and uh, Wall Street you can't trust, and then now jumping in full bore with YOLO call options and all these wild financial product, not necessarily innovative products, but a market that only goes up. And, Some and, of it is pretty innovative. Like and, and, you know, among the innovations is, is the Robinhood innovation of, you know, selling you call options at a zero dollar yeah. commission, which just encourages massive amounts of churn and trading and profit for Robinhood. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, there's a lot of, again, what you would call socially useless innovation going on, right? Well, most innovation <laughs> in the financial sector is socially useless. This, this is not my term, by the way. This is Adair Turner, mm -hmm. like Lord Turner's term. He's like... You know, the, the financial sector, nearly all of what it does is, is if it's not socially useless, it's socially harmful. You know, it, it exacerbates inequality. It's bad for the world. Um, and and we're seeing a lot of that right now. I, I find it hard to believe that much of the frenzy surrounding, you know, anything from Dogecoin to GameStop is socially useful. Um, quite quite the opposite. But there's a lot of it going on, and um, and we are seeing uh, levels of retail participation in the stock market that are absolutely unprecedented that I never thought I would see in my life, and that's democratic. You know, that it's not all bad, but um, for a Gen X of like myself, who was brought up on like the passive revolution, and you should just like buy an index fund and not touch it for thirty five years. Yeah. Um, you know, it is terrifying. 
Yeah, what's the some big strokes Howard Gen X um, observing and feeling and interacting with this? Being being one generation above and a little more, um, you know, actually you were there, you you were you were working when these things happened. Whereas the millennials, I, I saw it. it, man. Exactly. Yeah. I was I was I was on the phone to the you know bankers. Um, so yeah, I would say, but I would say generationally, um, Gen X is pretty cynical and mm-hmm. tends to be very suspicious of bandwagons and doesn't like jumping on them. And, and the whole meme thing is very, whatever the opposite of Gen X is. Right. So <laughs> I think, I think in general, most of us have been, um, you know, sitting on a Vanguard target date funds or whatever, and kind of doing nothing and doing fine. I mean, making lots of money because everything went up. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and every so often looking at some kid who comes to work for us in like the product or tech department and then quits, you know, four months later calling in rich because they made like $3 million (laughs) on crypto and you're like, okay, fine, whatever. Like that's just, it's just a whole other world. And there's a little bit of jealousy there, but it's just a lot of incomprehension really. Yeah. So how, I mean, it sounds like we're dancing around the topic of a speculative mania. Do you frame it like that at all? Or is it unsure? Oh, for sure. I mean, 100% there's a space. I was quite strongly of the... uh, Let me rephrase. I definitely considered (laughs) that, for instance, the rise in house prices that we're seeing Mm -hmm. right now is not a speculative mania. I, I don't believe that the housing market is a bubble. I don't think it's speculative. Um, in order for it to be speculative, again, you need to go back to like 2005 before we saw the last speculative housing bubble where people were buying just for the sake of flipping, right? The whole point about speculation is that you're not buying anything for its intrinsic value. You're buying just to sell to a greater full of a higher price. Mm-hmm. Um, what we are seeing right now in the crypto world and in the meme stock world is absolutely the textbook definition of speculative Mm -hmm. um which has a bad name right like um people use that term very pejoratively and one of my opinions is that it's not nearly as harmful as people might you know concern troll um there's a lot of boomers who are like oh you're gonna you're all going this is all going to end in tears and you're going to lose your money and it'll be very bad and you know i'm like look these these kids are 22 years old like how much money did you have in the stock market when you were 22 years old if you lose it all at least you've learned something yeah. could right? lose it all um, and it's fine actually for some of them <laughs> exactly exactly like I, and and you see we have seen over and over again people on reddit um discords and the like you know almost bragging about how much money they've lost you know i I see it on tiktok all the time um so it's not uh i think it's much less of a problem i think one of the things we learned in 2000 and this is this is where me being you know old comes in handy um is i remember (laughs) the 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 dot-com crash of 2000 um and one of the things we learned about the dot-com crash of 2000 was it was really not very harmful a huge number of people lost a lot of money, but it was equity. And when equities go down in value, eh, you know, a few companies go bust, a few people lose their jobs, but the economy was actually fine. You know, Alan Greenspan cut interest rates and, you know, we, we trundled on happily. The real pain does not happen when people lose, like when people lose money on speculative bets on Dogecoin, like it's really a no harm, no foul thing. When people lose money on their house going on that, you know, on their mortgage being underwater and they lose their house, like that is really painful. Like what we saw in 2008 was very bad. What we saw in 2000 was fine. Um, if there is a crash in 2022, I'm of the opinion that like that will also be fine. It'll be more of a 2000 style crash than a 2008 style crash. And, um, and the, 
while you can have a stock market crash, you're not going to have a financial crisis. And I think that one of the problems that I do see is that gen is that the millennials in particular don't understand that distinction. They, they think that anytime that stocks go down that, you know, is a financial crisis. No, it's not. Stocks are just stocks, right? They can be worth this. They can be worth that. If they're cheap, that means they're cheap. And you can buy more of them. If they're expensive, that means that, you know, like it's, it's an asset class. You can collect like, you know, watches or whatever. Um, and, and, um, there's a, that I do meet a lot of people who really worry about like the economy if the stock market goes down. Mm -hmm. And I think, well, it wouldn't be great for the economy. It wouldn't be nearly as bad as it was. Like the the reason that two thousand eight was bad was like you know the stock market plunged because the economy was bad. Um, whereas if the just because the stock market plunges doesn't mean the economy is bad, and I think we saw that in two thousand. Mm-hmm. And so can you break down the mechanics of that a little bit and explain why it's the same? The mechanics are fundamentally the same this time as opposed to in 2000 as well. For someone who might be listening is like, well, they let's say they take the other side. So when you have a bunch of stocks trading at frothy valuations, you know, they're worth whatever someone's willing to pay for them. And then when people stop being willing to pay lots of money for them, the price, the value of those stocks goes down and the market as a whole goes down. Um, but that doesn't change the productive capacity of the economy, right? That doesn't change GDP. That doesn't change the, um, the engines of future cash flows, right? Like we were talking about stocks versus flows here. What we're talking about, like what we're not really changing is, how much profit companies are making. Um, so it, if, you know, valuations fluctuate, that's fine. And I think we've seen this actually very vividly with Bitcoin, right? It has gone up and gone down and gone up and gone down and whatever value there is to Bitcoin. And you can talk to your blue in the face about whether there's any intrinsic value to Bitcoin. Uh -huh. um, but whatever value there is doesn't seem to have any relation to the price of Bitcoin, right? The, the development that has happened in Bitcoin development that has happened in ether or Solana or whatever coin you want to talk about um, happens like on top of the platform and is, it's almost entirely unconnected to whatever the price is. And so whenever I have, you know, bets with Ben Horowitz about like the future of crypto, it's all about like, well, what's going to be happening with crypto? It's never about what's the price of a coin going to be, because that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And I think stocks are a little bit like coins in that sense. You know, they're a way of um, saving money. They're a way of trying to in in increase the amount of money you have. Um, on some level, they're a way of funding companies. But, you know, you, could, you have to be careful never to commit the solecism of confusing the stock with the company. There are good companies with low stock prices. There are bad companies with high stock prices. And that's capitalism, and that's fine. Let's dive a little more into crypto because it, it has such a powerful narrative. And in my mind the narrative almost fits too perfectly to the times because right now there is such powerful for forces of populism and anti-elitism and crypto pretty much provides a very, very streamlined story to that time period of it's the, it's the anti-elite um, tool to escape the system somewhat. It's it's like it's the solution to the philosophical problem that everyone feels like is going on. And do you so the question I want to pose to you is is that the correct narrative to think about Bitcoin or just crypto in general? And then in what way might its narrative be speaking to our moment like currently right now? So I, I think you're right. I think that if you go back if you look at the sort of repercussions of the financial crisis, 
mm-hmm. um, and the mistrust of Wall Street and of finance that came out of the financial crisis. It's, you know, one of the things that came out of that was the Tea Party and ultimately the rise of populism and Donald Trump, right? Another thing that came out of that was the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper that came out in yeah. 2010. Um, and there was this feeling that there was a deep fragility in the global financial system and that maybe there was something cryptographic that would be more solid, that would be better. Um, and then and then it snowballed. It, it took off from there. Um, we can definitely argue about whether there is a deep fragility in the financial system and whether the deflationary fixed supply of Bitcoin, you know, is a solution to any particular problem. I would say quite strongly that it's not. Um, you know, a deflationary currency is much worse than an inflationary currency. Um, I would say that what you have, what I have seen is Bitcoin turn into something of a religion and people just start um, believing in a quite religious sense and quite evangelical sense about like how their way is the only true way and the better way. And they, and they wind up having opinions about things like fiat currency that don't make a lot of sense unless you view them through the lens of, well, you have to believe this about fiat currency in order to um, believe what you do about Bitcoin and believe that it's, you know, the way, the truth and the light. So, um, so yeah, I think there's, there's definitely a narrative there. I think it's a very flawed narrative, but it is also on some level, a self-fulfilling narrative, right? You don't need all that many people around the world to buy into that narrative for the value of these cryptocurrencies to go up and to the right, which is what they've done. And um, and so it's it becomes a fun game to play and a speculative game to play. And a lot of people can get rich playing that game. And the, in, on some level, the more you buy into the narrative, the richer you can get. So there is a financial incentive to buy into that narrative. And where you see that financial incentive, you nearly always find people who will convince themselves to believe whatever they need to believe in order to make money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, to be clear, I like I hold cryptos because I believe they're going up because people are very fervent about them um, it, in one way or the other. I mean, but, that's that's the classic Keynesian beauty contest, right? Um, it's the same thing. It's the same reason you hold one stock rather than another stock. Like exactly. as, as Keynes said, like your your job when you're investing in the stock market is not to pick out the most beautiful person in the beauty contest. Your job is to pick out the person that all of the other judges are going to think is the most beautiful person in the beauty contest. Um, So if you are looking at the world of potential investments and saying, like, I think that a bunch of people are going to believe that crypto is a great thing to invest in, then it makes sense for you to invest in it, even if you don't believe in it yourself. Yeah, exactly. And I'm always still trying to figure out where I stand on that spectrum because there's like with anything and with narratives and especially these days, it's difficult to point your finger on and say, I'm hundred percent sure this is how it is. I don't think you can actually do that. But with, with crypto, it has such this powerful narrative and I'd like to dive in a little further. What you said a moment ago about um, the deflationary aspect of it. Is it actually a solution to the problem that it's saying it is? Maybe dive a little deeper into why is a deflationary currency perhaps um, not the solution or is not as appropriate as an inflationary so, currency. Right. Deflation is terrible. Deflation, like everyone kind <laughs> of has this idea that inflation is bad. And we can talk about whether or not inflation is bad and who it's bad for and who it's good for. And that's an interesting discussion. But deflation is absolutely terrible. Um, whenever we've seen it in the world, it has been just the most corrosive and destructive thing because when prices are predictably going down, no one wants to spend money. And this is actually what we see in the Bitcoin economy, that no one wants to spend their Bitcoin on anything. They all want to save their Bitcoin and hold on to their Bitcoin and hodl because that's how you get rich, right? You don't get rich by buying pizzas with Bitcoin. And the people who bought that pizza for a thousand Bitcoin are always just like, they're, they're the famous 
um, heels to the story, right? They're the, they're the dumb folks who like used the Bitcoin as something as, as, a, as a mechanism for buying pizza. Of course, you shouldn't have used it to buy pizza. You should have held on to it. If everyone is holding on to their currency, no one buys anything. There's no economic activity. Um, we're seeing that right now, like weirdly, you know, in, in, for instance, just take one of the few asset classes where we have a pretty high probability of knowing that prices are going to fall in the future, right? Which is used cars. Right now, the price of used cars is very, very high. We know with some reasonable amount of certainty that at some point in the future, when the chip supply chains and all of that kind of works itself out, the price of used cars will revert back to something more sensible and normal. The result is that the only people buying cars are the people who act you know, absolutely have to buy cars. If you have to buy a car, you have to buy a car and you have to pay whatever it costs. Um, but if you have a choice in the matter, if you have a, like an okay car and you're, and you're like, do I want to buy another car? Do I want to upgrade or something? You're like, no, I'm going to wait for prices to come down. Um, because what we have is a deflationary environment in cars and in any deflationary environment, it always makes sense to wait rather than to spend. If you extrapolate that across an entire economy where everyone is looking at everything and saying it always makes sense to wait rather than to spend, you have no economy. You just you just have a, a, a collective, everyone's waiting, no one's spending, everyone is just um, paralyzed, economically paralyzed. It's a terrible, terrible thing. So you really, like, this is why central banks, when they target inflation, they don't target 0% inflation. They target 2% inflation or 3% inflation. Larry Summers once said we should target 4% inflation, right? They, the economists want inflation in the economy because it encourages economic activity and it encourages people to spend. Mm-hmm. Well, to take this side of that for a moment, and I've got no horse in this race, but let's take an example of a pretty deflationary product, which I would say like cell phones. They, If the increase in technology advances within the cell phone hadn't kept up, the prices would just keep plummeting. Like take, for instance, how much would the cell phone from like the mid 90s cost you had in your car, the like the big thing, you know, it'd be like a couple bucks today. And Perhaps there's an argument where that in that paradigm, a whole paradigm, not like a little bit of deflation in an inflationary um, system, but a whole paradigm of deflation, maybe it would spur inflation more because to compete and to sell your products, you need to provide something that the other, you know, used cars or the cell phones aren't providing. So you're innovating, creating it, it, that thing. It, it spurs innovation, but it doesn't spur inflation, right? So mm-hmm. like... Um, so what you see, absolutely, it, when when you look at technology like, you know, electronics, basically, cell phones and stuff like that, that go down in price over time, that's exactly, you're exactly right. People are reluctant to spend money on a new computer if they know that, like, the next sexy version of the computer is going to be coming out in a couple yeah. months, right? They're reluctant to buy an iPhone 12 if they know that the iPhone 13 is about to come out. Um, the only way to persuade people to buy is to, you know, really hype things up and also to build in sort of built-in obsolescence, right? Most of these items that um, get a lot cheaper over time tend to have relatively short shelf lives, right? You buy a phone and then after a couple of years, the battery stops working and you kind of need a new phone because it's just a shit phone. And then you go out and you buy another phone. And people have got used to that cycle, right? Of like, when I buy a phone, I don't expect it to last 20 years. I expect, which is how long, you know, the boomers expected their phones to last when they <laughs> plug the rotary <laughs> dial phones into the wall. But yeah. then you would buy a phone, a phone was a phone, you plug it into the wall and it lasts for 20 years. Like no one expects you know, an iPhone to last for 20 years because that's the the flip side of being in a deflationary um, economy. It's that the only way that even works is if you're more or less forced to replace it every few years. Otherwise, no one would replace anything. And, you know, that was actually one of the bear cases against Apple for many years. Um, was like, everyone's got an iPhone now. Why are they going to want another one? You know, Apple had to innovate in order to, persuade people to buy new iPhones. So yeah, you're right. It can be good for innovation, for sure. 
But like broadly in the economy, if we're talking about, you know, toasters and dishwashers and cars and stuff, like there's, you know, you're not going to go out and feel like you need to sort of replace your couch every two years. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you. I get I get a new one every six months. Got to have the <laughs> nicest newest couch. So, um, in in that in that perspective, where crypto doesn't necessarily have the value that people say it does, it has some type of value because the price is going up. And so, perhaps that value is strictly narrative. Is is that a way to frame your perspective? Well, the value. Here? I mean, the value is 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 financial, right? Like there mm-hmm. are extremely liquid finan- uh, exchanges where you can um, exchange crypto for dollars and dollars for crypto, and you can stake it and lend it and get interest. And um, there's a lot of financial engineering going on in crypto, and so if you're within this sort of hermetic world of crypto, you can definitely make money and you can, well, that's the main thing you can do is like make money. Like there's not a lot of other things you can do with crypto, but one of the things you can do with crypto is like trade it and, and stake it and lend it and do financial things with it. So the, the financial architecture is really there now. Um, what, what has not really happened is, uh, and, and what that has meant is that it has pretty much settled the argument, certainly from a regulatory point of view about, you know, is it a commodity or a currency? It's a commodity. You know, it's a security. It's a financial instrument. It's not a currency. Um, and that's fine. But then it just becomes another um, what I call swag, right? You know, silver, why not, gold? It's like all of that stuff that has no cash flows, but people value anyway. Used cars, um, watches, you know, um, baseball cards. They're sneakers. They're, they're all doing very well right now um, because we're in a zero interest rate environment. So having dollars in a savings account is not going to pay you any interest. So why not buy sneakers, which can appreciate over time? You know, it's speculative and speculators often make money. Otherwise, they, it wouldn't be nearly as popular as it is. Yeah. So is it solving, it seems like it is perhaps in your view, is it solving any real world problems? Trying to think of a real world problem. (laughs) Like could perhaps Um, say the legacy financial system move on to a blockchain rails as somewhat of a more automated unit of accounting or? I, I mean, like I spent a decade now, like, talking to people who have painted pictures of what might be possible hypothetically in the future mm-hmm. using crypto. Right. So like, um, I, I can easily, you know, pull off the laser eye shelf, any number of wonderful visions for web three and how it's going to transform the world. And, you know, why Facebook decided to change its name to meta and square decided to change its name to block and, you know, yeah, all wow. this kind of stuff. Right. It's, it's, um, yeah, that those narratives are easy to spin, but what's harder is to say what, you know, crypto is 12 years old now, you know, depending on how you're counting, um, 11, but certainly over 10. And in its first 10 years of existence, what has it achieved? Like what, what can you point to where crypto has like made the world a better place? Um, and beyond, you know, making people rich, um, it's hard. There is a lot of people I know, you know, if I ever say this on Twitter, I get a million people screaming at me, telling me about, <laughs> you know, something, something remittances in Venezuela, something. Um, I, you know, I'm not entirely convinced that it's really made much of a real world on the ground difference anywhere that I can easily see. So helping people escape a inflating currency in a, develop, a developing market is not not one of them, or I mean, it's definitely one Cause, that, because there are it's, other it's, ways. It's, it's, it's a theory. It's a theory. It's a theoretical um, use case, right? And in fact, it's a real use case. Like I like there are individuals who you can point to in Venezuela or 
Argentina or wherever you want to point to, who have done this, right? Mm -hmm. It's not that it has never happened, but, you know, individuals in those countries have also just done it the old-fashioned way by buying dollars. And and the... um, If you look at the flow of funds in and out of these countries um, and how people try and keep their money safe, um, you know... Buying property in London seems to be just as popular as buying Solana, you know? Yeah. <laughs> if not much more. Exactly. So these days in, say, the podcast or your writing, what are some stories uh, that you are very interested in tracking and like taking a lot of your time? Like, where is your interest uh, lying mostly these days? I'm, I'm a, you're just all over the place. I'm a fox, not a hedgehog. Like I I do (laughs) get like, I do get little minor obsessions. I've got this weird thing going on right now with, with NFTs in the, like the physical art world, which seems to be going very weird places, which I don't entirely understand. Well, talking about that, I, Um, I don't spend a lot of time diving into the NFT world. Like I, I I completely understand what it is, how it works. Um, You do because no one else does. Well, I guess I mean like the the service story, you know, like non fungible tokens, all this stuff, what that means. But, um, mm-hmm. but then, yeah, probably I don't understand. So maybe maybe take me into that a little bit. Like, what are what's interesting you there? Um, so NFTs had a few different iterations, um, and at one point, people talked about them as art, mm-hmm. and then. The community slash collectible aspect of them really wound up dominating. So you wound up getting these communities of rocks or penguins or apes or whatever you had you like that people wound up valuing much more highly than anything aesthetic. Um, or even for that matter, the like the NBA top shot stuff where people would collect you know, Michael Jordan dunks or whatever they were collecting. Um, the, that idea of it being very community based, I think has really won out, but the art world saw what was happening with NFTs and, and, you know, to your point about narratives, one of the, um, one of the strongly held beliefs by a lot of people in the art world is that NFTs can institutionalize resale royalties to artists. And if an artist makes a work, then whenever that work is resold, the artist can get a cut of it. Now, I don't think that's actually true, but um, people believe it. And so people get very excited about that. And and so the art world is very interested in getting, in getting its foot in the door. And there is a constant stream of people trying to bridge the gap between real art, you know, physical art objects, which people mm-hmm. understand that, the legal structure around and NFTs. No one's really done it very well. People started, there was one point where people were like physically burned works on paper because they felt they needed to destroy the value here in order to create value there, which made no sense. Um, People are, people are doing other things as well. People are, you know, there's this um, company called masterworks, which isn't based on NFTs. It was briefly meant to be on the blockchain. And then, you know, to your, to my earlier point, um, it gave up on the idea of doing anything on the blockchain because they realized it didn't solve any problem that would be a useful problem to solve. Um, but they became a unicorn by fractionalizing paintings and selling off bits of Banksy's and Coors and Gerhard Richter's to people at, you know, $20 a pop. Um, and everyone's like, well, if you can do that with SEC registered securities like Masterworks is doing, why can't you do it with NFTs? So people are trying to do that. But every time you get the collision of the digital and the physical, um, there's a way, they're always like incommensurate in some way, and no one has really worked out a way of doing it. And I think the, the lesson of that is bigger than just the art world. And I think it speaks to quite deeply why it's going to be hard for the crypto world to interact with the real world, because the real world is based in contracts and civil law and courtrooms and all of the kind of stuff that doesn't exist in the crypto world. And, you know, you can have cryptographic certainty that a smart contract is going to do something, but that's not something that you can take to, you know, 
the Southern District court, Courthouse in Lower Manhattan and say, can you uphold my right here? And trying to be able to convert one back and forth to the other is always going to be almost impossible, I think. Well, yeah, that's such a good point. And I I would just, I have no idea, but I would assume like that's coming, this enforcement of crypto contracts. But, but it's not, like it is self-evidently not coming. Um, because all you need to do is ask the question, what jurisdiction is it going to be enforced in? And then you're like, shit, fuck, I don't know, China, India, yeah, Russia, South Africa. Well, I guess, I guess that's what I mean is like, at some point, a state could say, okay, all El Salvador? human rights in this. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like all real estate will be um, codified in the blockchain and we'll enforce it with our rule of law here in the country. But that's what I find so interesting is people that are very, very passionate about this world, there's no distinction between what's written on the blockchain and enforcement in the real world. And that's the point I at least try to make is I think what you're making here is that this token or this whatever can say I own a Banksy, but, but it if there's no enforcement of that, I I don't really. It's like me writing up right. my own piece of paper saying I own. Yeah, a house I, I next can door. issue. I can issue you. I can issue you an NFT tomorrow saying you own a Banksy. Like that, and a Banksy will mean that you own a Banksy. Like the only way you can own a Banksy is by owning a Banksy. Because <laughs> at the end of the day, it's enforcement, and I'm I'm just not sure how that's happening today. It, I mean, it's clearly not, but. I'm completely open to it happening at some point in the future. I mean, if, right, if someone writes that enough. into their, but I guess what I mean is if someone writes that into their constitution and it's like in law that any real estate bought or sold in our country has to be on the blockchain. Then, it's then just it's, like that. Then it's just a. It's just a different unit of account, deed, right? Yeah. Every you're just like, storing in, it somewhere else. If you own, if you own a piece of property in the United States or in Canada or wherever you are, like you have a title that is recorded with the government somewhere, and if someone wants to know who owns this piece of property, they can go along to the place where these deeds are stored and indexed, and they can look it up and they can find out that you own it, right? Mm -hmm. Like that can be on the blockchain, but that already exists. The blockchain is just a different way of keeping that record. But let's say that there are rules against, um, say, certain Russians who are on the sanctions list buying property in your country. And let's say that someone transfers them the token that gives them the right to own property in your a specific piece of property in, in the country. Then what wins? You know, do, is, it, is it like the cryptographic immutable truth of they I own this coin and therefore I own the property or is it the law which is made by the government saying no I'm sorry you're on the sanctions list you're not allowed to own any property which one mm -hmm. is it you need to pick and it's always going to be the law who wins it's never going to be the the cryptographic truth whoever's bigger and stronger right I mean like but it's also just who controls like the courts right who is mm -hmm. the government that, that that's what it comes down to. And the strength and the weakness of crypto is that it's very international. It recognizes no borders. And if it doesn't recognize any borders, it doesn't recognize any courts. And if it doesn't recognize any courts, then there's no real world ownership there because all real world ownership is based ultimately in legal ownership that will be enforced by a judge in a court of law. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I mean, I hear some people bringing this up, but it's not a, as big of a conversation out there that I would think it would be. Do you find that like this, this it, element yeah, because, of enforcement? Right, because, because like people, people are caught up in the dream. Right. And as I say, mm -hmm. like 99% of it all is just speculative. And so it doesn't matter whether it makes sense or not. So long as people agree to get excited about it and, um, yeah you know, the price goes up because that's really what it's being used for is speculation. So if, if that's kind of the root of all of it is these emotions and passion and about the narrative, is it, is it ultimately just a speculative mania and that all how it plays out just like all speculative manias 
before us? Like, do you do you think about so kind of the end game spe- of this? So, so Dan Gross wrote a great book called Pop about speculative manias, and speculative manias have a bad name. Um, they often produce a lot of good things, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, the speculative mania of the dot-com bubble produced a huge amount of investment in telecoms that ultimately built things like AWS and the contemporary, you know, that the whole like web 2.0 infrastructure and Facebook mm-hmm. and all of these stuff would never have been possible were it not for the speculative mania of the late 90s. Um, other bubbles, assembly, like the, the speculative mania in railroads in the 19th century in the United States, a lot of people lost a lot of money, but we also built a lot of railroads and those railroads proved to be incredibly useful for the economic capacity of the United States. Um, So, and indeed the speculative mania of the housing bubble in the mid 2000s built a lot of houses and those houses are now lived in by families who have a shelter over their heads. And if those those houses didn't exist, they would have even more of a housing shortage now than we do. So that's like, there are definitely good things that come out of speculative manias. Now it's unclear to me um, what the good things are that are going to come out of the speculative mania in crypto, but given the absolute insane amount of money that's going into it, it would be (laughs) pretty, far-fetched to imagine that nothing good would come of it Mm -hmm. what could be like what have you ever you know pondered that like what could be some of those i mean as i say there's 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 no end of web3 evangelists who'll give you long lists of the things that could be great yeah just ask mark zuckerberg and his you know meta avatar what the, what could be the what the wonderful future of crypto and and web3 of course like that that is the easy bit right the easy bit is what could be. The the tougher thing is what will be. Hmm. And have you even tried to think about that? Or just like, I believe something will come of it, but at this point, it's anyone's guess. Not even interesting. I believe that what comes of it is, you know, as I say, like, it, it'll it be a broad-based thing. Like, it'll, it'll be everyone will have access to Facebook and Amazon. Or everyone will, you know, have slightly better housing choice or everyone will be able to send freight on rails or something, you know, it'll be like a base level infrastructure improvement for everyone somehow. Mm -hmm. I just don't know how. So what's really fascinating about this in our time right now is a lot of these speculative manias, well, not necessarily the dot-com bubble, but a lot in the past were focused on a region or like a people. And Crypto has the potential to be like a global, it literally could pull in everyone in the globe and get on board with this thing. And do you think there's a way that it has this strong narrative of it's like escape, the system's broken, come to me, we'll all be happy and kumbaya together over here. And so is it possible that it's pulling our optimism and our collective will to work within the system and work together on mending this thing. And we're just going to escape over here. And so it's going to pull a lot of our energies and our passions and desires away from the things that are broken and do need our love and help. Is there an element of that? Look, if the best and the brightest are all going off to work on crypto, instead of all being going off to work at Goldman Sachs, like, is that worse? (laughs) Probably not. <laughs> yeah. And I, I guess I was more thinking about just like the collective idea of what does it mean to be American? And everyone's got their own vision of America and their own vision of how it's gone wrong and all this stuff. And and there seems to be a strong and, and that's happening in a lot of countries. And there seems to be this this desire to kind of also just throw in the towel for some people and be like, you know what? You guys fight that out. I don't really care. I'm making my money over here, speculating and whatever. And everyone's kind of isolating in their own camps. And I guess I'm just trying to draw how is, and trying to figure out and ask you, how is this large movement of speculation and excitement, how is that impacting our real world and our real world politics and our real world uh, social connections? 
Right now, I think there are pockets where it's a big deal. You know, you can go to El Salvador or Miami or somewhere. Um, Puerto Rico, I think, or Singapore. Like, there are, there are areas where you can see that, but they're small, and I don't think they scale. Um, I think the communities you see springing up on like Instagram are much bigger and much more powerful um, and have really had an influence globally on the way that people organize and, and, and consider themselves to be part of a community. The communities that people consider themselves to be part of like are very much their tribe on Insta or on TikTok mm -hmm. these days. It's much less based in physical reality than they used to be. Um, and there are upsides and downsides to that. And, you know, we can talk a lot about like, you know, how it's had a very good effect in terms of um, many of you are unwanted pregnancies, like all manner of wonderfully great stuff has come out of it. Also, we can talk until we're blue in the face about all the terrible things that's happened and all of the body image problems and so on and so forth. Um, you know, Young people have never been politically active, really. If you look at the numbers, like the percentage of 25-year-olds, 30-year-olds who ever vote has always been tiny. Mm -hmm. um, and it remains low, but it's not low by historical standards. Um, you know, the kids these days don't care about the things that I care about. They care about some other stuff. Like, it's yeah. an eternal plaint. Um, and so, yeah, it doesn't worry me, really. Uh-huh. Well, we've uh, drug you through the chapters of crypto far too long here. So, um, Felix, thanks so much for coming on. If folks want to find more of your work, um, we've mentioned a few of the places, but maybe um, drop some names here and some places they can go to check out your uh, podcast. Please and also subscribe to my, my newsletter, Axios Capital. Um, subscribe to my podcast, Slate Money. Follow me on Twitter, Felix Salmon. And... Um, yeah, that's, that's, those are the big ones. Awesome. Great. Well, again, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Listening to other YouTube channels, I hear a lot of the smashing the like button. I'd like to suggest gently click it. It's going to be nicer on your computer and probably longevity for your technology anyway. So likely click that subscribe button, like, rate, and review. It is the best way to help us reach more audience, more people. And that way we can keep producing content every week. Make sure to drop a comment below who you'd like us to interview next. And we look forward to seeing you next week.